as you notice, Pastor Howard's not here today. Uh, Pastor Howard is actually preaching at uh, Redeemer Church in um, in Monroe. And uh, Redeemer is a sister church of ours now that we are organized on our own. But they were a church that supported us from the beginning. Uh, and they're, uh, he's going uh, to preach there for the end of their missions conference, uh, which is exciting. So that's where he and Pastor, uh, Pastor Howard and Kelly are. And in fact... Um, uh, um, as you know, Terrence and Key aren't here as well. They're taking in much-needed uh, vacation as well for the next couple of weeks. So uh, it's just us. Um, uh, and uh, I teased Pastor Howard earlier. He left me with a mess uh, with uh, sermon-wise after last week's sermon, uh, which uh, the text... Uh, I, I've been racking my brain for a more difficult text to preach on ever, uh, uh, and, and I don't have one. That was it. That's as bad as it gets. Um, but uh, there's, what do we do now? Uh, what, what, what do you do after that? And uh, I'm going to be very careful in the way I speak about this, just so you know, because uh, last week was so NC-17 rated, uh, and, and because the, the text was so NC-17 rated, I may be speaking a little bit um, more in code than normal, or a little bit more, a little bit less accessible for for some of the younger kids to start, just so we get all the data out there. Um, uh, and uh, because last week we had people who had to literally had to leave their, their kids had to you know they had to go entertain them other places because uh, it was so hard, and it was so hard. It is a horrible thing that happened in Israel. The scripture talks just about the uh, a, a murdered woman, um, but there was so much more. And uh, I want you to know also that me speaking about it in kind of higher language is not, I'm, I'm just trying to communicate data in that sense. The heart of it is what I felt like you felt, brutally disturbed uh, last week, um, as you did, outrage, if you will. And that's what we have to feel around this. Uh, there was a buzz around Christ Central last week as we, uh, a, 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 as, as people kind of come back reeling from the brutality of what had happened in the scriptures and, and therefore in our midst. And uh, uh, it was outrage and rightly so. We, we, but the reason why it was so, uh, so much of an outrage is not because... Uh, it's a it's a bad idea or it was a horrible thing of an idea that happened. It was a parable, some Aesop's uh, fable, if you will. The reason it is is because some of that story comes so close to yours and my stories, because it does tie to reality in some sense. It is it's an outrage because we know, as the Scripture talks about the, uh, it last week, unspeakable things that have happened to us. I dare say that we have done unspeakable things. It hits home. It is brutal to our hearts because, uh, not because of just there. It's brutal to our hearts because it's here too. It's in our midst. I know some of your stories. I know some of what has happened to you. And I know why you would want to get up and leave to not hear about those kind of stories anymore. We know the world treats people this way. And we know that even the church has treated people this way. It is real. It's hard, but it is real. The scandals on TV that you see or the televangelist scandals or the quietly dismissed pastors and priests that exist, it is real. Someone at one point asked me, well, could it have just been a parable? Could it have been some type of tale for us to uh, to kind of entertain the idea of so that it could be a something of a lesson learned? And And at one point I stopped and said, You don't want it to be a fable. You want it to be real, the brutality of what happened last week. You want it to be because that's the only thing that can make sense of the brutality that exists in our world. 
If Jesus is not good enough for the funeral parlors and the emergency rooms and the trash heaps of this world, if he cannot be met there in reality, then you should abandon him as a God. You should abandon him as a God not to follow or worship. If God cannot handle the most difficult situations, the places in which we cower because of abuses or we hide ourselves because of abuses, or if he cannot stay our very hands of abuse, then we need to abandon him. He's not worth following if he can't deal with the reality of our souls and our hearts that exist. You see what last week did, I hope it churned in you and churned in you deep, was a sense of justice. We know of unspeakable stories and we want them to be known. We want people to have to face their worst deeds. We want people to tell us that they are sorry. We want people to pay for their sins. We want restitutions for the broken things. We want justice. You want it to be real. You want it to be known as real because because someone told you it was all just in your head. Someone told you that the abuses that were occurred to you and the neglect that happened to you was just uh, overindulgence of a childhood imagination. And that is not true. We need to be able to hear truthful, truthful things so that people can speak to us and say we're not crazy. And that's what Judges 20 does today. It says, yes, it happened. Yes, and there's justice required for it. You guys must understand the longing for justice that you felt last week is a longing that is imprinted with the very hand of God. It is, you are made in the image of God, longing for justice. That is right and true and good. I know some of you are a little lost because you're still trying to figure out what last week was, and we'll get to it so we can move forward. But here's the problem. Our longings for justice are messed up. We don't actually believe that the universe is wired for justice. So instead of justice, it's just us figuring out on our own the ways to move forward. Like this passage, like all of Judges has shown us thus far, is that Israel had no king and they did what was right in their own eyes. The same is true for our pursuit and longings and and desires for justice. So we scramble and we manipulate and we control and we control and force the universe into into some type of justice that we can fashion. Anxious that it may not exist, we feel compelled to to make it happen on our own. And that's what Judges 20 is all about. The deep issues of injustice and how we deal with them. Checking our instincts, checking our hearts as they go forward. Realizing that we may not be cut out for the kind of justice giving that this world demands. And it gets us to start exploring. We don't explore just Judges 20. It starts to explore us as well. It starts to ask us questions about who we trust in and why and and what being right means and how uh, strongly we take on the arms of being right and good and, and being the good ones who can meet out the justice in the world. It explores us and make re- realizing the difference between uh, victim and victimizer because they're both in this story. So here's what I want to do. Three things. I want to run through the story and that'll be the bulk of the sermon. I want to run through the story, and then I want to ask two questions afterward. What does Judges 20 say about us as human beings? And then what does Judges 20 say about God? That's all we're going to do today. The bulk of it will be uh, walking through Judges, as it were, just kind of taking through, coming, stopping off here and there, working through this story, because obviously something really terrible has happened, and everybody's coming up, and, uh, and, and, and people die. Lots of people die. Someone asked me after last week, well, what's going to happen? I said, a lot of people die. 
Like 60,000 people die. And they were like, oh, well, wow. Really? Judges the messed up book only gets more messed up. Let's turn our ears to the story. Then all, verse 1, Then all the Israelites from Dan to Beersheba came out as one man before the Lord. The leaders of all the people of the tribes of Israel took their place in the assembly of God. Then the Israelites said, Tell us how this awful thing happened. Here's what's interesting first. Everybody shows up, in this fact, the leaders, and they come out as one man. Now, one man's pretty important. One, one person, one, one united as if they were one body. It's a multilateral UN force or confederacy of, of 11 tribes. The irony is, this is the amazing thing about this, is that we've been all the way through Judges now. There's only one chapter left, and we haven't had a place of unity yet. And in, verse, in chapter 1, verse 1, God calls them to unite against the Canaanites. And not until this point, even in the glorious days of, of Deborah uh, and, uh, and even Gideon, they never assembled all together united. And the irony of it is, this is the first time there is one man, if you will, and guess who they're fighting? Their own people. Israel is beginning, is the first time that they're obedient to Je- Joshua 1 1 is in the fact that they have to be their own worst enemy. That's one irony. The other thing is, you got to see how the order of things works. Look how it reads. It reads, they all assembled with swords in their hands. Then they ask, what happened? You know how that goes, right? You're mad, something went wrong, I'm ready to fight, then what happened? They come ready to fight. Obviously, uh, cooler heads don't prevail in these things, but... There's no king, remember, there's no one to go to to talk about adjudicating the situation. And, and there is no king, but Israel knows that Yahweh is their king, but you gotta understand also that Israel has, I mean, Yahweh hasn't even had an honorable mention in the last four chapters. We're a quarter of the way through the, the, the last quarter of the book, and Yahweh doesn't even show up. They don't have practice any kind of Yahwistic worship anymore. God's just not, He's not around. They don't, they don't engage Him. Of course He's around. He's sovereignly over all, of all these things. But they don't engage him as a king who can actually help with the situation. So it's grab your swords, come on, then we'll, it's kill them all, ask questions later, is what it is. Let God sort them out, is what's happening here. They're showing up. And I understand. But this is what the picture is. Now it's interesting because, because the, uh, what's not in your text is that the, ben, uh, that, um, the, the, the narrator says that the Benjamites were aware of the gathering in Mitzpah. The Benjamites, the bad guys, if you will, in the story, um, they know what's going on, and but they don't show up. They don't show up to bring justice to even their own people. They uh, start posturing for something else. Okay, so the question is, what have you done? Give us your verdict on this. And what is it? The Levite husband... And the word in your text in verse four, it starts there. So the Levite, the husband of the murdered woman said, I and my concubine, which also means, uh, you know, second or third wife without a dowry, as we heard last week, came to Gibeah and Benjamin to spend the night. And then I left a lot uh, uh, from being repeated. And then I put, now all you Israelites speak up and give your verdict. Let me, let me summarize what the Levite priest said. The Levite priest actually owned the fact that uh, he was the first one being pursued by the, the group at Gibeah. At Gibeah. He, he, he agreed to that. And then he said, and he also admitted, that he's the one that also did the dissection, if you will, and uh, sent the parts across the, uh, across the land. What he didn't say in his explanation of things, what he didn't say 
was that he was responsible for throwing her out to the crowd of people. What he didn't say was the scripture said was that that uh, unspeakable acts occurred then, that they had their way, as, as the scriptures would say. They had their way and they left her either too dead, too dead or dead. He didn't mention that he was responsible, partly responsible for what happened to her. He didn't say any of that thing. And he's a Levite, a priest of God, and he doesn't even mention Yahweh again the whole time. He doesn't mention God's covenant love of dignity with people. He doesn't mention, you know, the Ten Commandments, thou shalt not murder or anything like that. He says, what you going to do about it? That's a rough translation of now all you Israelites speak up and give your verdict. What you going to do? You got to do something. And so a man who's partly guilty for this situation, again, let's be really clear, he's not, he's guilty and really badly guilty, but he's not the actual crowd who did the most of the diabolical act, even though his was pretty horrendous. Um, he comes up, they believe his story, exactly as they said, and then he goes, what's your verdict? Not, where is the king of Israel and how should we, let's check the scriptures out, let's move forward in this, let's figure out what, it, what y'all gonna do about it? What y'all gonna do? No, it's just us, the trigger-happy people of God, duped by a bad priest, duped by their own sense of indignation, which is a right indignation of what happened, duped by their own sense of righteousness that they can bring about that justice. They're enacting as a just-us justice. Instead of calling for the justice of God, they're acting as if they didn't have a king and they could do what was right in their own eyes. And you know what happens next. The same thing that happens on every playground from uh, kindergarten all the way up uh, to the playgrounds of warfare. It's called escalation. You all remember this? I don't, I'm sure that none of you have ever participated. I'll tell this story as if I had never participated in one. Uh, but in elementary school, I was, uh, uh, believe it or not, a little overweight. Uh, and, uh, but I was a wrestler, and I, was, uh, I didn't mind um, participating in some ruckuses every once in a while. But this instance was clearly not mine. It was someone else's, and I'll deny it if you... Ask my mom about it. But um, but you know how it goes. I don't know about elementary school for, for you, or this is kind of junior high school, if I remember correctly. And uh, it starts with some smack talking, right? Everybody's kind of talking something. Usually a mom gets involved in there somewhere, or at least said about somebody's mom at some point. And in my school, uh, which ended at 3.15, it took about three minutes to get to the other side of the fence uh, from school grounds so you wouldn't get in trouble which is not actually true when you live on a military base uh, because you always can get in trouble there. Um, and uh, and so uh, we people would go out there and then it would start the jaw jacking all three minutes on the way out, start, a crowd would start ga- get gathering and then there would be uh, escalation. There would be the beginning of a, of a taunt. Uh, and then my favorite, my all-time favorite is the chest push, you know. You know, you just kind of push up there and you get a little pop in there. And, uh, and then for some reason a chest push to a push push. Now, I still... Just in the theory of human beings, don't know why a push is not right into a punch. I just don't understand why that happens. But you can get a couple pushes in before necessarily it escalates, unless people are very experienced and then they don't even mess around with the chest punch or anything like that. They just go at it. But, um, but you know, it escalates and it goes, it goes bigger and bigger until there's fists flying and it's a mess. It goes, it goes from posturing to counter posturing to, to pointing to, to pushing to, to fight, just all out fight. And that's exactly what happens here. Israel comes up and says, um, uh, it, it, it's like this is the nuclear arms race of uh, the ancient Near East. Here it is. 
The tribes of Israel sent men throughout the tribe of Benjamin saying, What about the awful crime that committed among you? Explain the awful crime committed among you. Now you understand that's an indictment of them as a whole. That's what they're doing there. What kind of people are you that let you let this happen? That let this happen? And they actually tell them, surrender them up, give them up, spray them up, tell me who they are. I don't care if they're, if, if they're close to you or not. I don't care if it's your uncle or your aunt. Bring them out here. All right. And you know what they say? No way. It ain't happening. No way. It ain't happening. Now, here's the really good thing about this passage is, is actually they say something that's really neat. Uh, it seems a little uh, uh, haughty, but it says, surrender the wicked men of Gibeah so they may put them, put them, so we may put them to death and purge the evil from Israel. The rightest part about this escalation is that last part. It's to bring purity to Israel. This is a pox on their house. This is a horrible thing that happened. And the longing for justice that we have does need to move forward. This is actually an injustice that happened to them communally. It needs to be dealt with communally. If you have been, uh, 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 if you've been abused or neglected in any way, it needs to be brought out in the light and understood and known by all. That's an important task, important thing that needs to happen. Remember the raise you had last week. That's important because that's how we move forward in this. So they actually had that. But the escalation quickly moves to, hey, give us your guys who did this. Give us whoever did this. And the Bible says, not just no from the Benjamites, but no, do you want to fight? Look, it says, it doesn't say it in your passage, but it says in mine. At once, the Benjamites mobilized 26,000 swordmen with their ta- from their towns, in addition to 700 chosen uh, men from those living in Gibeah. It's not just, no, we're not going to surrender. It's, no, we're not going to surrender. Do you want to fight? You ready? And so they have 2,600 soldiers that come out. They mobilize for the fight immediately because they're not playing. But look what it says afterward. It says, among all the soldiers, there were 700 chosen men who were left, uh, left-handed, each of whom could sling a stone at a hare and not miss. That's kind of cool, isn't it? It's like the Green Berets. They pull out the big guns. You know what I mean? They, got, they all have laser sights on their weaponry, you know, with the little red dot, that, you know, like you see on TV. They can all hit their mark every time, all the time. They bring out the Green Berets, the bad mamajamas of warfare, 700 fighting men who were for real. Now, as you, we talked earlier, we've had, this is not the first time we had left-handed in, in judges. And the first time we had left-handed, uh, uh, we had a left-handed judge, and it was kind of a, a weird and quirky thing because he was left-handed which meant uh, on a one-on-one camp combat he wasn't necessarily skilled and he couldn't be put in a platoon together because his shield and his sword would be on the wrong side and so he was kind of a, a, a hindrance for warfare. But if you had 700 of them, you actually had a, uh, several platoons, an entire battalion of, of people who could attack from a different angle than normal. And so when they're left-handed and there's 700 of them, you actually have an advantage. So these guys are really are the green berets with the laser sights. But what do you have? Escalation. Not to be outdone, the scripture says, well, the, uh, the rest of the 11 twelfths, and the Benjamites are over here with their green berets, the rest of Israel says, well, we're going to get 400,000 swordsmen. There's 135,000 American troops in, in, uh, in uh, Iraq right now. That's three times as many. That's three times, or two and a half times as many. That's 15 times as many as the Benjamites had. You talk about escalation. This is total uh, uh, full warfare escalation that happens. 400,000 troops. Game on. Right? The problem is that it is a very sad game that we're in. 11 twelfths of Israel 
is poised for battle, a little trigger happy, definitely longing for something good in terms of justice, but trigger happy. They draw swords and ask questions later. When they did ask questions, they received a, they received a report from an unreliable source. They didn't even ask the question about, hey, they, you said they were after you first. Um, why did they come after her? They didn't even ask the secondary question. And then the Benjamites. The Benjamites who choose solidarity with rapists over solidarity with their own people. Solidarity with rapists instead of a solidarity with God's law, His covenant to bring dignity to people. It is so backwards. The Benjamite situation is so backwards. It's so backwards that do you know that the word Benjamite means right-handed? Their most potent warfare is when they're inversed and the right-handed tribe is fighting left-handed. It's so backwards and messed up, just like the whole book of Judges has been thus far. Tribe is more important than truth. Culture is more important than character. Your pupil group is more people that more important than your Lord's call on your life. It is crazy. And it is the fog, not of war, but the fog of pre-war. It's so wrong. The Levites, the Benjamites, the Israelites, it makes you longing for something. And here's where the battles start to occur. I'm going to very quickly go through the battles. There are three of them. The first battle, they come up. The Israelites say... Let's go to war. They gather everybody. They go to war. But right before they do, they go, Hmm, God, who of us should go first? First time God's been talked to this entire time, by the way. First time in like four and a half chapters since Samson called down the pillars, to ask for strength to call the pillars. Been God, Yahweh has been addressed directly. Who should of us should go first? And this is a good beginning instinct. But it is not the kind of humility you're necessarily looking for. Not, should I? Not, not, hey, is this a good idea? Not, you know, it's, Lord, bless me with my strategy that I've already come up with. Or, and you just tell me where to fit it, Lord. You know, pat my good idea on the back and, you know, put a little, you know, monkey dust on there or something like that and move forward. And the, and the Lord actually replies and he says, Judah will go first. Now, Judah, is the tribe where the concubine and the Levite were living. She's actually from the tribe. He was actually living there. So there's two things going on here. One, they should be the most angry about what went on. Two, they're also the most culpable. If you got that backstory that Pastor Howard talked about last week, there was a lot going on before this event happened with the concubine and the Levite uh, that, that was really messed up in the tribe of Judah. First of all, what was he doing there? He should have been in Shiloh. Second of all, uh, uh, something really bad happened that the woman left uh, detesting her husband, right? And we never, this never gets explored. She goes home to her Judean uh, father. He says nothing for four months, doesn't address it with her, doesn't figure anything out. The priest comes back after four months. That doesn't get, uh, nothing, no justice is happening there. The the, uh, the father uh, um, of the concubine actually tries to hire the, uh, the Levite back and try to make it work. There's all sorts of culpability that's happening in Judah. So God says... Put Judah first. And what happens? 22,000 of them die. The green berets are bad mamajamas. And it may be 400,000 versus 26,000. But 22,000 of them die that day. The next battle, they go, hmm, 
What's really interesting, after that first battle, they go, the scripture says that they, in the Hebrew it says, they strengthened themselves. I think it says they encouraged themselves in your passes. They strengthened themselves and then went back to their old encampment. They, they, they did, they, they encouraged themselves, they strengthened, they give some good kind of, you know, I think I can, I think I can talk. And they went back to the exact same strategy beforehand. They literally camped at the same place. Now they did ask again. This time they were very upset. They were crying and weeping. And, uh, uh, they're crying and weeping and they asked not just, you know, who should go first, but should we go at all against our brothers? And God says, you should. And something really bizarre happens. They go up against their brothers and 18,000 more die. And again, the Green Berets, they got nothing that's recorded. There's nobody lost. They're throwing those rocks, splitting rocks on rocks. You know, like I think of Robin Hood being able to split an arrow with an arrow. I and mean, they can split a hair with a, with, a, with a rock. These guys are bad. And another 18,000 die. 40,000. Twice as many as there are Benjamites. Talk about tithe. A tithe of their lives. Something happens in the third attempt, the third battle. Now, several things happen. No self-talk. No, I think I can, I think I can. Not just the soldiers, but all the people of God come. They come to Bethel and they weep before the Lord and they fast all day. This is a really important note. They fast all day. Is it a really good idea to fast before you go to war? No. It's not a really good idea. Unless you think it doesn't depend on you anymore, but it depends on the Lord. They fast all day. They present burn offerings and fellowship offerings, sometimes called uh, ascension offerings or um, uh, shalom offerings or peace offerings. They uh, um, and it says really importantly that the Ark of the Covenant of God was there. The, the Ark of the Covenant was the thing that represented God's presence with them. And it was there. And they ask again, should we go up this time or not? And God answers, go, for tomorrow I will give them into your hands. And the rest of the scripture reads, there's another 20 some uh, uh, verses. The rest of the scripture reads... Uh, that he does precisely that. In verse 35 it says, The Lord defeated Benjamin before Israel. And on that day, the Israelites struck down 25,000 and some odd Benjamites, all with armed swords. <laughs> it goes on to say that they, 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 uh, they struck down and went after um, uh, the, the, the tribe, part of the tribe that left. And, uh, and came down and they burned all of Gibeah and the villages of Benjamin. And they set it all on fire. And I want you to read that passage sometime when you get home or something like that. Because what's really amazing about that passage is that it is the Lord's fighting and not their own. They don't do anything the same that they did. And it just assumes that God actually helped them with their, with their strategy this time. In fact, they use the Benjamites' confidence against them. They actually draw the Benjamites out in in an ambush. And the Benjamites are actually haughty. They're thinking, this is going to happen again. We're ready to roll. We're going to do it. And they turn around and they realize there was an ambush on their home, uh, uh, back in their their old towns. And then they realize that their towns are burning. And they turn around, they go back, and they realize, and and then the the, the support troops come back. And instead of fleeing and drawing them out, they turn around and come back at them. And they run for the hills. And they go down and go after them like that. Militarily, it's an amazing thing that, that happens when you use someone's arrogance against them. But there's something else that's going on here as the Lord finally brings about that justice. 
It's the Lord who did that battle. It wasn't their ideas, not their self-talk, not their justice bringing. Okay, that's a lot. That's a whole lot. What does it say about us? What's Judges 20 all about? Besides a heap of, you know, 60,000 dead people because of this awful thing that happened. What does it say about us? One of the first things it says about us is that we as people don't see clearly. There's a great doctrine in Christianity. It's called omniscience. It's what Christ has. It's what God has. That He can know all things. That's something God has. It's something we don't have. We even talked about uh, in our creed today, creator of heaven and earth, uh, all things seen and unseen. But we don't have the ability to see the whole clearly. We are finite. We're creatures. Creatures don't know how the the whole creation works. We rush to judgment. A just us justice that doesn't take into account our finitude, our fallenness. We are finite. We don't see comprehensively enough. We only see the tail on the elephant or the foot on the elephant or the trunk of the elephant. That's why the Bible requires uh, two or more witnesses for any kind of capital case. You can't put anybody to death if there's only one witness. They put, they were trying to put 26, an entire tribe of Judah to death off of one clearly bad witness. We do not see clearly and we rush to judgment. The rush to judgment part shows that we don't just see clearly, but that we're not good. We live in a fallen world and we participate in a fallen world. I love how the story doesn't really doesn't really leave you with a good guy. It's like a good modern story in that sense. There's a, there's a clear victim from last week. There's some clear really bad folk, but nobody looks really good. Everyone in this story is victim and victimizer, sinner and sinned against. And that's what we are. Identify with somebody, will you? And you're gonna need some, you're, you're gonna be victimized and you're gonna be a victimizer if you identify with anybody in the story. We're not all knowing. So we couldn't know how to do justice, but even if we could know how to do justice, we wouldn't have the character to be able to meet it out. It's not enough to be simply right. It's not enough to be a member of the moral majority, whatever moral majority that be. It's not enough to be against uh, sexual uh, deviance like in our passage or violent actions like in our passions, uh, passage or uh, public, pu- uh, bad public policies in our world or it's not enough to be right about education or government or immigration. It's just not right. It's not, it's not good enough just to be right about the tenets of religion. We must first be right with God ourselves. That's what the real question is. What scripture calls a right heart. I was at a conference, Pastor Howard and I were both at a conference a couple of weeks ago, and, uh, two speakers in particular were brilliant in this because they were showing, uh, an injustice that happens in our denomination, and it's, it's a little less, uh, uh, um, inflammatory as the one we're dealing with today, but a real sense in which people have done, people in the domination have done things, done some things that are really wrong. And they're talking about covenant renewal. It was the, uh, excuse me, um, uh, denominational renewal. And it was beautiful. And we were there and it was a bunch of young guys who, you know, a little bit have, um, you know, dad wounds and issues like that. And, you know, uh, who, who are, are trying to be young and try to feel their way into leading in the denomination. And it was really interesting, but two very wise, uh, men, uh, told a couple different stories and they talked about the injustice of how we live in 
in such a schismatic or, 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 or uh, fighting denomination. We infight all the time. And they talked about the history of it in American Presbyterianism. They talked about how, how uh, they, call, they use the term schismatic. So the, uh, there's a schematic, schismatics here and the schismatics here. And, and then right after he got us all nice and riled up about being against the schismatics, he said, and everything you feel right now is just as schismatic as they are. Oh, I wasn't, I'm not good enough to know my own heart. I'm not good enough to know that an anti-schismatic party is schismatic. And then another guy started talking about the paranoia of the religious right and how bad they are about, you know, worrying about, oh, don't let those people out there mess up your kids or don't let them come into secular ideologies or anything like that. And he was just dogging them and it was just great. I was loving it. Just, it was awesome. And, uh, I was loving, and right at the time where my heart was really going to get in bad shape, he said, and you know what that is for us today? It's called cynicism. Their paranoia, our cynicism. All cynicism is, is paranoia with an iPod. (laughs) Think about that one. That runs for a long time. It's been haunting me for weeks. It's true. But we're so cool in our cynicism. You know, oh, nothing matters. Our heart can't be taken. You know, whatever. It's just paranoia with an iPod. It's just anti-schismatic schismatics. We're not good enough to adjudicate what's right in this story. We are not. We cannot see clearly enough. Though we've been imprinted with the instincts of Imago Dei, of the image of God, we are not good enough. Our hands are always bloody. We cannot know. We cannot know. And so we, it, what it does is it shows us that we long for something more. What Genesis, what Judges 20 does, it actually says and searches our hearts and says, you long for a true and right judgment. And you can feel it. I hope you can. I hope some of what I was saying made you mad at me because probably I'm not getting it right either. And I'm admitting that I'm not because we long for someone who can handle, who can adjudicate our lives, the ways we've been sinned against and the ways we sin, the ways we have been violent towards others and the ways that others have been violent toward us. We need someone who can adjudicate us. And it creates in this longing for someone good and right. We want people to acknowledge their sins. We want someone who can say that, who people own the way that they've hurt us, who stop, uh, who, uh, we want abusers to be stopped. We want a perfect judgment to come. It's good for you want, for, for you to want evil to be toppled in high places. It is good for that. It's good for you to, to cry up against the powerful, cry against the powerful to the disenfranchised and the exploited, the marginalized and others who are taken advantage of. We're supposed to long for more and Judges 20 makes us do that. We want evil behavior to stop. If your stomach was churning last week, it should. It means you're human and alive and that you long for a justice that you cannot bring. All of our hearts are heated up because of 9-11 or the war in Iraq, or Abu Ghraib, or Darfur, or in Guantanamo, or Al-Qaeda's terror training camps. Judges 20 is exploring that churning that's happening in our hearts. It's calling us to long for something more. And here's what the rest of Judges 20 does. It shows us that we do. That there is a God of justice. That there is a God of justice, and there is a God what y'all say of, of sacrifice. Listen, he's the perfect judge in this. He has figured out who and what and how people should, uh, should perish because of their sins. He has, uh, he has, um, made a way for, uh, the, the blood of the concubine woman 
to be heard in a people. He has brought justice to this situation. I talked to one of you and I said, the, uh, the same person, I said, yeah, tw- uh, 60,000 people die. And, and it was a time when someone was really feeling that churning of justice for the concubine woman and the way the Levite treated her and the way the Gibeonites treated her. And, um, and she said, good. I'm not sure that's wrong. It seems like that's right scripturally. I just admitted I don't know how to adjudicate these situations. But I'm telling you, we have a judge, a king in Israel who does, who can manage and adjudicate and can see clearly, who is omniscient omniscient, and is morally able. He is the righteous one. The Lord defeated Benjamin before Israel. In our creed to say, we said that, that Christ comes to judge the living and the dead. God is our judge. But there's one more thing he is. He is our sacrifice and our substitute. Look at how, what changes in the battle stories. They weep in the second one. They're really audacious in the first one. They weep in the second one. But in the third one, they actually make sacrifice. They actually have a burnt offering, an ascension offering, same thing. They also have a peace offering. Do you know what that means? That means they took an animal. The priest, probably not the Levite priest, considering the son of Aaron was there, the son of the son of Aaron was there, and they placed their hands on that on that animal as a representation for all of Israel that there would be a substitute for the sin that they committed would be on that animal. This is the eleven twelfth. This isn't the Benjamites. This is the ones that are trying to fight for justice, and they put their hands on the priest puts their hand on that animal. And they take the animal and they burn it as a whole sacrifice. The whole thing gets burned up. What is it doing? The transfer of hands is the transfer of their sin. It's a symbol, if you were watching it, it's a symbol of Israel's sin on the animal. It's a substitutionary atonement. A substitutionary reckoning. It's a substitute sacrifice for what should have happened to them. There are actually two burnt offerings in their story. The Benjamites are a burnt offering too. You realize that? Their whole town was burnt up in a hole. Or there's a substitute burnt offering. One who takes our sin on us and is burnt up before the Lord. This is what our Lord Jesus is. He is our burnt offering. Our scriptures today in the assurance said, He became, He who had no sin became sin so that we might become the righteousness of God. He substituted Himself for us so that we could stand right before God. We deserve, and so did Israel on the other side, all 12 tribes deserve to die at the hand of God. But God made a way through the sacrifice. He made a way for them because he loved them, because he keeps covenant with those who break covenant with him. He keeps covenant with those who are dastardly and awful, who should have done better, should have done right. He, through a substitutionary atonement, a substitution of that sin, brings redemption to the people. He who has no sin, Jesus, became sin for us so that we might become the righteousness of God. That's the story of the gospel, and that's the story of who we are. And then there's one more thing that happens. They don't just have, this is the beauty of it, they don't just have a burnt offering, but they have a shalamim, or shalamimim, shalamim, that's what it is. 
Shalom. They have a peace offering, a fellowship offering. Not only has God made a way for you uh, to not receive the sin you deserve, but he's made a way through Christ Jesus to have fellowship with him. Not just a pardoned criminal, but a son and daughter of God Almighty, of the judge who can see clearly. There is not just a burnt offering that goes up, but a peace offering made with God and his people, a shalamim. That's what we're about to do here. For those of you who can trust the substitutionary atonement, who can, who can trust the burnt offering that Christ is for us, there is a peace offering here. This is a celebratory offering. This is where we dine with our Lord like they did. Different than the burnt offering that's a whole offering, the peace offering actually gets distributed. The priest eats a little bit. A little bit is portioned out for Yahweh to come and consume. And the rest, and, 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 and some goes to the people. It's a fellowship is offering. There's nothing wrong between us anymore. It is peace that can be had. And that's what happens at our Lord's table. A peace offering of celebration. Oh Lord, thank you that the wrath has passed us that we deserve. Thank you that someone other than us got burnt up. Thank you for how you have restored us to yourself as your covenant people. And, co- and thank you for letting us dine with you then, now, and for eternity. Let's pray. (laughs) Lord Jesus, we do thank you. We thank you for your goodness. We thank you for your love for us. We thank you that you care for us. We thank you that you have pardoned our sin. We thank you that you make a way for the abused and the abuser that you can see rightly and clearly. We thank you and we trust you that sometimes that sometimes you will bring justice and clarity for us and sometimes we don't understand it. But Lord, we trust you as the eternal judge, the one that will raise the living and the dead and judge them. But Lord, we know if we're judged on our own merit that we won't make it. So we beg as a covenant people that you would continue to make... Uh, your covenant renewed in this Lord's Supper, that Jesus would continue to intercede for us, our sacrifice and substitute. Jesus, please uh, give us faith to participate in the fellowship offering even now. We ask this in your name. Amen.